0: Junior, if you're looking for the pony rides, they're back there.
1: Excuse me, excuse me? You, you dropped your d di- 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 dynamite uh, <laughs> What else have you uh, got in there?
0: Oh, eh, powder, nitroglycerin, notepads, fuses, wicks, glue, and clips, big ones. You know, just the uh, office supplies.
1: It is the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy.
0: Popcorn Digest. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time Mouse House fanboy, Andrew Raphael.
1: Oh boy, I just love paying more for less. <laughs>
0: And in the latest episode of our show, we'll be taking a dive into Atlantis, The Lost Empire, the animated film about a sunken ancient city that ironically sunk the Disney Animation Department. But is this swashbuckler a rip-roaring adventure, or have Disney ripped the heart out of their renaissance? Find out after the trailer. single day and night of misfortune, the island of Atlantis disappeared into the depths of the sea. From the year that brought us 9/11 comes Atlantis: The Lost Empire, <laughs> an animated Disney film. <laughs> an animated Disney film that follows a group of explorers on their search for an audience. This Jules Verne-inspired adventure takes us deep into the Earth's crust to grand and expansive sci-fi worlds ripe for deep exploration. For about 15 minutes. (laughs) Michael J. Fox voices twink adventurer Milo, an Atlantis-obsessed dweeb who absolutely was not inappropriately touched by his grandfather, who (laughs) joins a band of weirdos on their search for the fabled sunken city. Chaos ensues, and that's after the film is released. (laughs) So, Andy... Why have you chosen Atlantis to discuss on Best Forgotten, I mean Popcorn Digest? Yeah, well it was originally on our list for
1: Best Forgotten Movies, the the list of a thousand films the day I think. one list
0: yeah i'm sure it's come close to being on the podcast several times in the past as well like back in the best forgotten movies days we did that titan ae show which pushed this one back that was it yeah
1: because we felt there were two similar and also very similar eras so we didn't want to have them very close to each other
0: yeah they are two films vying for the same audience i guess at the time they didn't realize how limited that audience was i was thinking about this before and i would say yes and no titan ae
1: leans much more heavily into that intended target audience where i feel like mm-hmm. atlantis potentially could have played to a much wider
0: audience had they adjusted the marketing as such but we'll go into that later yeah Okay, so, Andy, what is your experience with Atlantis? I take it straight from the off that this is a film that you already have a pre-existing relationship with?
1: Yeah, I think I saw it in a cinema in Swindon. It's one of those films where I can remember exactly where I was when I saw it. Like the death of JFK? Yeah, well, I think also it was one of those films where it was very poorly attended. And it's interesting thinking about it now, because in the retrospect of time passing, the disney renaissance which has now officially ended with tarzan at the time that didn't exist because the term disney renaissance had been coined at that time but as you're living through it the actual documented end of it hadn't yet surfaced yeah of course yeah the jury was still out on it but you did get the sense that because of the rise of CGI films, especially, I'd say, from 98 onwards. I think that was the birth of CGI as a mainstream force and the decline of traditional 2D animation. But even then, around about 2000, 2001, you could get a sense that Disney and audiences in general were starting to lose interest in this particular Mm. medium. And you could sense that as well, because during the Renaissance... Disney had very much got set into this formula which was producing these uh, Broadway style musicals and that all abruptly came to an end after
0: Tarzan because the
1: pattern started to get
0: disrupted. Yeah, we are on a long, rocky road to Home on the Range. Yes. I mean, that's where everything's heading. All roads lead to Home on the Range. Oh, yeah. Well, all roads lead to Chicken Little.
1: Uh, Chicken Little? (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, yeah, we get films like Fantasia 2000. Oh, of course, yeah. I still have not seen that. Which, on the surface of it, don't seem that unusual, but it's the start of a very odd selection of films.
0: Yes, and Fantasia 2000 itself has a rich history behind it, oh, yeah. especially yeah. a history rich with conflict, I must say, uh, between the old Disney guard and the new. Yeah, That's where things seem to come to a bit of a head there. Then you have
1: all the debacle with Kingdom of the Sun turning into Empress New Groove, which will definitely be a, a Popcorn Digest episode. I don't really want to digress on that because there's so much
0: to Talk about well, with those two films, really uh, one released and one unreleased. All we can really say about that film that, in terms of making it ripe for discussion on Popcorn Digest, is that the production of the film was so turbulent that they buried the making of documentary. You can only yeah. watch it now by you know illegally downloading yeah. it, it is not available and it wasn't ever made available.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, you get Emperor's New Groove, Dinosaur. Which in the US at least is considered a part of the animated classics line, even though to be honest, I don't feel it deserves its placing in there because it's only partly animated. You know, all the backgrounds are live action, very much like what they did with um, The Lion King more recently. So that's an odd one for me. Yeah, and then we come to Atlantis, which was caught in the middle of all this because you have to consider the films that were made afterwards as well with uh, lilo and stitch treasure planet brother bear and the aforementioned home on the range uh, which is a very um, jumbled bunch of films mm-hmm. especially when you compare it to what had come before it which although
0: eclectic i had a um, a set style yeah i hesitate to use the word template but definitely a style and
1: these films were definitely attempts at either clinging on to that formula or doing something completely different and atlantis is one of those films that tries to do something completely different
0: yeah in a way i would say that this and treasure planet have the issue in that they are Probably a little too similar, yeah, in terms of the uh, demographic that they're going for, like I think if you need if you were experimenting in what audiences want to see and what a Disney animated film could be, I think those two films needed to be far far different from each other, really, to maximize the potential of hitting hard with a particular audience. yeah Atlantis came out in 2001, and that is like peak me at the cinema. Every weekend, several times a week, probably, yeah. going to see everything I can. And um, and I did not see Atlantis. I don't even remember it being advertised. No, no. <laughs> I don't remember seeing an advert. I used to always love the trailers, and um, I went to see plenty of films that this probably might have played before, but I cannot remember seeing a single trailer for this film. And in fact, I it led me to believe that this was something of a bomb, which is not necessarily true when we get into it. It is certainly an inflated budget, but it's not quite a bomb. However, it wasn't until much, much later, I would say only about 10 years ago, maybe mm-hmm. eight years ago, you put it on for me. And we watched it amongst many other animated films and yeah that was my opening to Atlantis I don't really have much of a connection to it but I do find it to be something of an oddity the film that I went to see at the time was Treasure Planet that was the one I did go to see and uh, that's also a bit of an odd duck as well. Yeah, yeah. I would say that one definitely skews closer to, as well, the Titan AE thing of not just being a flashier film, so to speak, but also yeah. it has that kind of, we got Google Dolls to do some of the music for this film. And
1: Yeah, Treasure Planet is, for me, a stranger film. Uh, I would say it's a more confused film, because mm-hmm. in the one sense it tries to be flashier and edgier, and have all, you know, have your goo goo dolls sound the edgy
0: sounds of goo goo dolls? <laughs> <It's> Disney's
1: interpretation <laughs> of edgy. Um, but in its design, it's much more traditional and yeah. it has much more traditional Disney characters in yeah. it, like your Dr. Doppler and your Ben Gunn robot. It falls more into the
0: cliches, I suppose, than Atlantis mm-hmm. does. Well, that's them very much having the genie character again, kind of thing, yeah. that whole yeah and to be perfectly
1: honest although i do like what treasure planet does if i had to keep one of the
0: two i would definitely keep atlantis rather yeah. than treasure planet you know treasure planet does have its moments yeah, it does have yeah. its lovely vistas and very imaginative action set pieces i do feel like there are more risks taken with atlantis especially yeah. on as we will get into like a character design level that type yeah, of thing yeah out of the two of them, I think, yeah, that Atlantis does have the edge of two, in my opinion, flawed films, but ambitious films. Yeah, I would yeah. think that Atlantis is just that little bit more ambitious that has a little bit more going for it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So that brings us to the inception of the film, because Atlantis is directed by Kirk Wise and Gary Trosdale, mm-hmm. and their two previous films for Disney had been Beauty and the Beast and The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that particular team makes The Hunchback of Notre Dame, which comes out in 1996. And although the film itself doesn't completely set the world alight, either critically or financially, it is enough of a hit that they are allowed to pursue another film project. And because they had such a good time working with the team that they had assembled, they wanted to come up with a project rather quickly so they could keep that team in place and so the team of wise truesdale the screenwriter tab murphy and the Mm -hmm. producer dan Hahn, they all sat down in a in a restaurant i think what they ended up talking about was old school adventure films Like,
0: journey to the center of the earth.
1: Yeah, and also just saying, oh, we don't make them like they used to sort of thing. And and talking about all those long line of adventure films right up until things like Indiana Jones. Of course, The Mummy hadn't come out at this point. So, in a way, we're in a real dry spell for that kind of film.
0: For sure, yeah.
1: A lot of these classic adventure movies are... Disney movies like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Swiss Family Robinson, mm-hmm. Island at the Top of the World, even late films like uh, The Black Hole and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. There is a tradition within Disney for making live-action adventure films, so why not make an animated adventure film? And the initial idea was the Dirty Dozen goes to the center of the earth and we take inspiration from things like Jules Verne and go from there because there is a... Um, passage in journey to the center of the earth where they do pass through atlantis but at that time it's a dead civilization and they just pass through it and it's just all the ruins but they thought what if we do that but um they find that atlantis is actually alive and a thriving society Mm. populated by
0: 10 of the very same background characters we see in every show (laughs) (laughs) but yeah that was the idea anyway well, you have the opportunity as well to provide it its own individual culture inspired by many others. I, I saw it in the making of as well that one of the things that they wanted to get away from in regards to Atlantis was this idea that it was some Roman-looking yeah, yeah. in terms of architecture kind of place in a... They went for something a lot more inspired by Asian culture and South American culture, like Cambodia and that type of thing. And I think mm. that really comes across as well in the film. I like, I do like the design of Atlantis, yeah, and the ethnic identity they provide the place. It does feel fresh.
1: Yeah, yeah. Disney was starting to falter, especially around the time that this would have been green lit, because it had that massive hit of The Lion King. And then immediately after, you get films like Pocahontas and Hunchback and Hercules, which, while they all have their merits, especially for me, Hunchback, they all underperform. And at this point, Disney was maybe starting to think, are people starting to get sick of this formula that we had come up with? And would it be a good idea to try and branch out into doing different types of animated film? Mm -hmm. And I
0: think this was definitely... Greenlit because of that. One of the things that surprised me was that there was very little pushback that they faced in regards to exploring this new idea of making a film that didn't have any musical numbers, that didn't have any production numbers, that was like exploring a different type of animation style. That actually, at least initially, the kind of like green light to explore this further straight away. Yeah. And I think it shows that like Disney were in a place where. They're looking at that old template, they're looking at that old structure, and they're saying, yeah, what else can we do? Because this may have an expiration date on it. Yeah, yeah. I would say in a way, like uh, I know we always kind of like loop round back to that, but Marvel are in something of a similar situation at the moment where they're looking at the same template and going, ooh, this isn't working, but they're not in a point where they're, really trying to experiment further. They're still like, yeah. actually, if we keep doing the same thing, it'll come good again.
1: <laughs> but yeah, this this is really um, tumultuous times at Disney. Um, and we have to mention DreamWorks at this point as well. You've got like a perfect storm of everything coming off the cart and things that were put in place to improve situations, but actually they made things much worse. So you've got the transition of power from... Peter Schneider being head of feature animation and being promoted to head of the studio. Mm -hmm. And in his place, Thomas Schumacher becoming head of feature animation. And Thomas Schumacher, I would say, is a much more inconsistent head of the animation department. His track record was all over the place when you compare it to his predecessor, and then you have Peter Schneider being promoted and all sorts of bad things happened under his leadership as well. Peter Schneider basically got fired because of the performance and reception of uh, Pearl Harbor, which came out in the same period of time. Those two are also responsible for the whole retooling of Kingdom Mm -hmm. of the Sun.
0: Well it just shows you kind of like how much of a bad time that Disney were having at the time that yeah. when we get to the stats and facts, Pearl Harbor is in the same top ten as Atlantis. Yeah. Um so <laughs> that's at the place that Disney
1: are in at this moment yeah. in time. So for much of the Renaissance, the Renaissance films were made in a warehouse on Flower Street when they got uh-huh. kicked out of the original animation building in the in the mid to late eighties. And there was a sense of at that time of them having to make it work or animation would be shut down altogether. And through that banishing from the lot, they had to come together. And through that, they made all these great animated films, the early Renaissance films. Yeah. And around the time of, I think it was either Pocahontas or Hunchback, at sort of mid-90s, 95 or 96, a new animation building was built for them on the lot. And it was designed by... Michael Eisner's favorite architect, Michael Graves, who's designed so many horrendous buildings for Disney, and this was another one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, he also designed the famous Team Disney building in Burbank with the. Uh, you must have seen it with the Seven Dwarves as pillars oh, yeah. being crushed yeah. by the by the weight of the building. That's <laughs> yeah. like so inappropriate. Yeah. And yeah, he built this animation building, which you probably will have seen. It's the one with the sorcerer's hat at the front of it. Yeah. Yeah. Which on paper looked like, oh, great, we've got a new building. But the design of it was horrendous. It basically mm-hmm. discouraged any kind of friendly collaboration. It was a huge barn of a place, very corporate looking. Everyone's behind closed doors. It's just kind of an oppressive place. It didn't encourage... Yeah the kind of productions that they were making previously. And this definitely had a negative impact on the quality of the films that they were making. And then, to add insult to injury, you have the defection of Jeffrey Katzenberg and him setting up DreamWorks with David Gaffin and Steven Spielberg, and them creating their own animation division out of the ashes of Amblin Animation. You start getting a lot of the artists being poached by DreamWorks because they are being offered more money, more creative freedom, better conditions. (laughs) Yeah. And an opportunity to take more risks. So they lost an awful lot of artists in the mid-90s. So to combat that, they started giving the animators much more incentive, bigger bonuses, bigger salaries, which on paper looks great. And it's great for the animators, but the budgets inevitably start going up. And I just want to compare this. Yes, yeah. I just made a, a list of the three Kirkwise and Gary Trosdale films, which were all made within a 10-year period of each other, roughly.
0: Yeah, so inflation really isn't that big of an issue here.
1: Yeah. So, the budget of Atlantis is not entirely clear... It could be anything between 90 to 120 million, although I would probably favor it's probably going to be more 120 million when you factor in certain things. Yeah.
0: Wikipedia has it between 90 and 120, but most other places have it towards the 120 yeah, mark. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So if you think Atlantis was released in 2001 and made for $120 million going back, Hunchback was released in 1996 and made for $70 million. Yeah. And then. Going back further, Beauty and the Beast was released in the end of 1991, and that had a budget of 25 million. Yeah, exactly, and that's in the space of 10 years. So you can really see how these budgets started getting out of hand, and that reached its apex with Treasure Planet because that had a budget of 140 million. But um, yeah, I mean, I could go in into like lots of detail about the making of the film, but. It really comes down to them wanting to do something different, a bit edgier, but then they also wanted to carry that over into the production design. And they wanted to make the film look like a moving comic book. And the comic book artist that they favoured at the time was Mike Mignola, who was famous for doing the Hellboy comics. Mm -hmm.
0: A very distinctive style of Mike Mignola. Great artist as well. Very, Very interesting artist.
1: And they went to such lengths as to actually hire him as one of the production designers on the film?
0: Yes. It's weird. One of the best things about it is that when he was uh, brought on board, he found that they had been talking about his artistic style long before he actually um, Mm. was bankrolled on the team. And when he arrived, they had all these notes up on the board about what a Mike Mignola character design is and should be and how the hands are and how the heads are. And he said there were notes about things that... He didn't even know where Mike Mignola, <laughs> um, like, <Yeah. laughs> stylistic ideas. He was like, "How do, how do I make something like a Mike Mignola sketch?" So I don't think about it. That's just how it is for me. Yeah. And he said, no, "All these people have kind of deconstructed his style and uh, and repurposed it." And uh, to be honest, uh, as well, like the style that that Mike Mignola style is one of the, and, and we'll get into this a little bit later. But it's one of the film's biggest assets for me as well. Yeah, definitely.
1: I think as well, maybe there was like a little lack of discipline in the storytelling because they talk about how the journey to Atlantis was extensive and the first two acts ran from anything between 80 minutes to two hours and that's just for the first two acts. And also... You have that, um, I don't know whether you've seen it, the original opening of the film, which was finished.
0: I've not seen it, but I um, I didn't know it was completely finished. So yeah, I thought completely it was completely finished, yeah. The Viking prologue, they call Yeah, it. full colour, everything. It's like Superman Returns again.
1: <laughs> yeah, you could easily splice that scene into the film and you wouldn't notice. It's all done completely. And it was only at the last minute someone spoke up and said, hey, this doesn't really work as an opening because... It takes Uh 40 minutes for us to even see any hint of Atlantis or its characters. And by that point, you don't care about them. So what happens in this um, deleted scene? So the original scene as animated was... Hardcore pornography. (laughs) 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 Yeah, it's a Milo... Um. It's like you said it, you said it was a twink. Yeah, he definitely (laughs) has that twinkish vibe to him. Yeah. But the original scene is set on the ocean and it's a Viking ship. They have the Shepherd's Journal and they are seeking Atlantis for themselves. Essentially, the Leviathan attacks them from beneath the ocean and all that's left is the journal floating on the top of the ocean and then it cuts to the credits and then to the rest of the movie. Okay, that makes sense. It's a cool opening sting. But I think it sets up characters we never see again. Yes, yeah. And yeah, it just doesn't set anything in motion that's to do with Atlantis itself directly. So at the last minute, they decided, right, we need to actually um, show the destruction of Atlantis and set up some of these characters right at the start, but still start with a bang. And in fact, they start with a much bigger bang. If you compare the two sequences, the sequence that replaced it is head and shoulders above what they created initially. So in that Mm -hmm. way, it was a win-win. God knows how much money they must have wasted on that sequence.
0: That explains one of the issues that I have with the opening as it is, though, because I think that they struggle with the... Because they never intended her to be shown as a child. They struggle with the character model. Yeah. For, what's her name, Kida? Yeah, yeah. She falls into that issue that some animators and some comic book artists have with child characters in which they look like 40-year-olds. (laughs) <laughs> that have been shrunken down with out-of-proportion yeah. heads. And at times, she just looks like her adult character model with just this giant head on an infant body. And there's a great example of this in the Vision comic book where uh, Wanda's two infant sons are just like... I mean, they look like 40-year-olds, just like yeah. very small 40-year-olds. <laughs> and... For some reason, some artists just cannot draw kids in their particular style. And I think that had they had more time, they would have rethought that character. It doesn't always look that way. It's just that every now and again, she moves in a way in which it doesn't feel natural or look natural. Yeah, yeah. For that particular character. And that kind of makes sense now that I know about it, that it's been pushed through, rushed through
1: at a late stage
0: in the production.
1: So I kind of guess this leads us to talking about the film. Properly. Yes. I think for yeah. me, because I'm very much like a um, a big fan of this film, so I think it's probably more for you to uh, sort of enlighten me on what your opinion of the film is, given that you would have less of a connection with it.
0: Yes, exactly. So it's not a film I've grown up with. It's not as precious to me in that way. I will say straight from the off, I like Atlantis a lot. I don't love it, but I like it a lot. And I, I what I do love about it is its ambition. I love its style. I love the character work in the film as well. I think the characters are so strong. Yeah. Where the film falters for me and where my issues with the film really come up is that I feel, given the the enormity of this world and what we're exploring, that it's probably too short. By yeah, I would say yeah. a fair chunk of like twenty minutes or half an hour. Yeah, I could see this film being more along the lines of an hour fifty rather than it being the eighty minutes plus credits that it is. In a way, though, we've mentioned this prologue, and I think that's a great point, really, to get into now. One of the first things that I wrote is that the prologue that they do eventually go with, The Sinking of Atlantis, is certainly more action-packed, from what you've explained, and it gives us a view of Atlantis before we actually get there later on. It establishes it as a place. But one thing that it does rob the film of is, is a little mystery in terms of whether or not Milo's journey is a folly, and I, I get it. It's again, yeah, the film yeah. is called Atlantis the Lost Empire. Mm-hmm. If you are a, a cinema goer going to see a Disney film with that title, you are expecting to see Atlantis, yeah. But, um, also, it makes the film feel like Milo's journey is never in doubt, yeah. But I was also thinking while I was watching it, like, what other way could you seed in Atlantis before the characters get there without? Given the game away, I was I, I, like, I was spitballing ideas to myself. Like, maybe the mystery is that a character has escaped from Atlantis and is leading people back, or that kind of thing. But I think mm. that also gets away from it. But yeah, that's part of the issue for me is that um, this first 40 minutes, although, like, say, I, I think you could put another five minutes in that first 40, lose one of the action scenes, like maybe the ones with the firebugs. Yeah, yeah. Because it all moves very fast. Yeah, it does. In a way that you don't really stop for breath. And then when you get to Atlantis, suddenly you're in this grand world and I feel like the film should stop and explore, but we don't really get chance and it's yeah. kind of like a, a race to the finish. Yeah, I think the film suffers from being made at the
1: time when resources were of such that you couldn't get away with having an animated film that was over. I mean, this is actually still yeah. one of the longer ni- films of the period because I think it's about 96 minutes with credits. Oh, you are right. Yeah, it is like 96 minutes, yeah. But um, it could definitely help with having at least another extra 10, 15, 20 minutes on top of that. Yes. And it wasn't really until you get CGI films like The Incredibles, where animated films start being a little bit more
0: liberal with their runtimes. We certainly get overindulgent. like definitely, Something you would never think of back in the day. Runtime-wise, you certainly get overindulgent runtimes on animated films now. Back in the day, that was like practically unheard of but yeah I mean it does make sense as well with the previous films that Tresdale and Wise had made we look at Beauty and the Beast which is a sub 90 minute film I do believe and we have also Hunchback of Notre Dame is another 90 minute film as well these are the minutes you have they have 90 minutes to play with and in terms of what they do with those 90 minutes they do so much and I love so much of what's on offer but I want—I just want to breathe. Yeah, you just get the
1: sense of like them wanting to push all these boundaries but still being yeah. very much held back by the studio and what they wanted, really, which was a 90-minute film.
0: It's a shame that they were constricted by that because it does turn something, for me personally, what should be great, given a lot of the elements that are in play, into just something that's good, and that's fine. I mean, I would like not hesitate whatsoever to show my kids this film. In fact, it's something that we are certainly going to watch over the the coming weeks. I, yeah, if it says yeah. everything. I didn't watch it. I didn't watch it with them. Like, no, I need to concentrate on this kids' film. You are not <laughs> allowed to watch it with me. <laughs> I mean, that's the
1: thing as well. Like, they were straddling the line in terms of what an animated film could do, because in a lot of ways, this film has a lot of adult themes and things that you yeah. would expect in a fully adult action movie. But again, it still has to do some of the Disney things. It's, it's very like held back by some of the conventions that they have to pull. And that goes right down into the marketing and the target audience, which I felt was way too narrow. They're trying to aim for teenage boys, which is always a very volatile market anyway you never quite know what they're going to want to watch anyway I mean at the time they wanted to watch The Matrix (laughs) yeah (laughs) I mean I kind of felt that they should really have marketed this film for more all ages and try and push that because I still am a firm believer that animated films it's a medium not a genre it's not a genre they're really trying to push this in a a different direction and and, and trying not to fall into those traps but because it's obviously one of the first films where they're trying to do that, it inevitably does fall into some of
0: those areas, but I still have to commend them for trying. Oh, 100%, yeah. That is the thing for me, like say, I I love about it, it's ambition. It's probably just... I mean, I would say it's come at the wrong time, but it's probably a film that they had to make at the time they made it as well. Yeah. Because there was no other time in Disney's period of history that you're going to be able to make this film on an animated level like this. I mean, they haven't, other than Treasure Planet, which I say was made at a similar time, they haven't really made an adventure type of animated film like this. No, I mean to be honest, the only one I can think of, which is one that's coming out right now, right now,
1: yeah, is that Strange World film. That seems to be yeah a bit of a callback to those early two thousands films. The only other part of Disney that's doing that is maybe Pixar, but definitely not in this style. That's the thing that really separates it out. Because even something like Strange World has a really kind of goofy, rounded style. Oh, yuck. Yeah. <laughs> it does yeah this really does stand apart from anything else in disney's canon it's the only film that looks like it strays into sort of
0: anime manga territory mm-hmm. at times i actually feel that way as well about the james garner character or what's his name now Rook. um rock yeah i actually feel like that about him often in these kind of like anime films you get to see these American generals that have been based on some, uh, you know, Japanese-American military base. And they all have that kind of, like, strong chin, crew cut. He seems to embody that kind of, like, anime style that they go for. He even looks a a little bit like there's a certain character from, like, Ghost in the Shell. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, it seems, on an animation level, this film's really going for something. Uh, It it dabbles, uh, I say dabbles because it does something with steampunk, That I always find steampunk to be something that you should use sparingly because it's a gimmick that gets old pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. There are a few filmmakers that use it well. I think Guillermo del Toro uses it well in Hellboy, which is another Mike Mignola as well. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) like which makes sense. But um, this has just enough without coming across like it loves the smell of its own farts. Yeah. You know. <laughs> some things yeah. that you do that really bother me is that like they overcomplicate some things like things for example there are machines and that type of thing that have more moving parts than they should do just for mm. simply elaborating on the style whereas I think the thing that I like about Atlantis is everything feels like it belongs here nothing yeah. feels like it's superfluous and I love the animation design and this is something I really want to speak about or something I love. I love the characters. Yeah. I love the secondary characters. I love the dialogue. I love the voice performances as well. Considering this is a film that moves fast. Yeah. And in my opinion, the world doesn't get just enough screen time to
1: stick the landing. It's definitely a positive flaw because it's like, yeah, I want to spend more time there. I want to spend more time with these characters. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Definitely the film's like big Achilles heel is that, yeah, it doesn't quite get fleshed out enough as a whole but yeah all
0: the individual moving parts are pretty great I pretty s- fantastic To yeah. Be fair, yeah i understand why with these characters they have grown their own little cult followings in the years since yeah i yeah. mean milo is a fan favorite you have helga as a fan favorite vinnie yeah. is obviously a fan oh, favorite God. but you have all of these characters that have become like Minor Disney staples for these like little cult followings, and I completely understand why. Because despite the film moving fast, these characters still get their moments to shine, and it really comes across. They never feel 2D either. They've all, and we even get a moment where we get to find out what their motivations are in terms of they're not just the explosives expert and the mechanic and that kind of thing, they've all got something else going on, and it all comes back around in a meaningful way as Mm. well for the film. And it's on the back of these characters that this film truly shines for me. Yeah,
1: and it's a perfect storm of the character design, the animated performances, which I feel like at this point it was very polished. So you're getting that innovative, different style of character design smashed together with this incredibly refined animation style. Mm -hmm. And then you... Join that with good characters, but then the, the voice performance as well are all yeah. incredibly solid. You've got Michael J. Fox's Milo, which I think is a masterstroke. I think he's easily one of my favourite leading characters in all of Disney. You know, a large part
0: of that is down to his performance. And what he brings to that character as well, in terms of his kind of like boyish charm. This yeah. kind of young naivete. His performance as well really um, hammers home with the character arc. It also has one of these, um, something that we've mentioned on this podcast before, and especially what was happening with DreamWorks, is you get a lot of stunt casting where the yeah. voice is secondary to the actor that you can get to voice that character. It's like oh, the voice is almost inconsequential. Is it a name? Yes, great. We can put it on the poster. This is, Michael J. Fox is a big get- It's a big name. Back to the Future is still massive. (laughs) Yeah. You know? And yet, it doesn't feel like a stunt casting. It feels like he lives, breathes this character uh, throughout the entire film. It's a perfect marriage. You've got actors who are perfect for the roles that
1: they're in. And one of my big bugbears with DreamWorks is that, like you were saying before, they just go for a name based on their status and whether they can put it on a poster. And they very rarely bother to change any character designs to fit in with that. And for me, one of the biggest offenders, and one of the earliest examples of that, I would say, for me is Shrek 2, where almost all of the new supporting characters, their voices do not match their character design whatsoever. And the biggie is John Cleese voicing the king, because they do not go together whatsoever. In fact, to the point where it looks better when he's voicing the king as a frog than the
0: actual king as a human. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, and it's just, it takes you out of the film so much. I mean, I know that Shrek is life and Shrek is love, but also Shrek also isn't very good in my opinion. No, (laughs) no. As a series, I don't mind the first one. I think it's still got its charm, but it's certainly very, 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 very dated. Oh, yeah, it's it's aged very poorly. yeah. Because it, it it became one of those things that rooted itself in a specific time, but it's cultural references. Yeah, and also who it was attacking. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But yeah, with, with
1: Atlantis, everything just fits like a glove and you're not left questioning whether that voice actor fits that character. They are just that yeah. character. You're not thinking, oh, that's Michael J. Fox. You're just thinking, oh, that's Milo on screen. That's Milo, yeah. So that's a, a real big positive is in its characters
0: in all aspects, are executed very, very well. I mean, the standout for me as well, Michael J. Fox, is, as Milo, is one of the best leading characters of a Disney film, in my opinion, as well. I'd certainly agree with you on that front. But this film also boasts one of the best secondary characters as yeah. well. I think Vinny is Ugh. just wonderful. Uh. <laughs> Every line that he has is just perfect yeah it's just perfectly pitched comedy every single time and his facial animation as well when he's as he's delivering it the way his eyes move you know he becomes more expressive when he has sudden like little mini realizations within himself it just has it's everything he does is just golden in this yeah film. i think it's because they let
1: what's the name of the guy who voiced him um don novello yeah he let him improvise it's a bit like a robin williams thing where they recorded one take of him saying the line is written and then just letting him do his thing. But uh, I played this film once to somebody at uni and for the next year, every time we
0: met up, it was paper clips, big ones, literally <laughs>
1: every single time. <laughs>
0: like, I suppose one other thing to mention as well in regards to... Uh characters, one of them, uh, James Garner as Rock. I've mentioned, I uh, really do quite like his design, I like his performance quite a lot as well mm. I like as well that he represents a very anti-capitalist message which is always, you know, always a welcome message to receive from the Disney Corporation, <laughs> all hail Disney our overlords and masters <laughs> but yeah any anytime we have like the Disney Corporation we had it with Dumbo recently as, as well, like this this idea that Disney, other people saying, you know, capitalism might actually be a little bit bad Mm. from Disney. (laughs) Yeah, it always makes me laugh. It essentially turns it into an anti Indiana Jones movie. Yeah. Indiana Jones is also clearly one of their major inspirations, even right down to the aspect ratio that they did choose for this film. They wanted it to be a widescreen film. And that makes sense for the worlds that they're exploring. But yeah, it essentially turns into like anti Indiana Jones in terms of you know this is not about guts and glory or uh, you know that type of thing you no know, the riches mm-hmm. this is a film about them finding the artifacts and the proof that they need and leaving it the fuck there yeah, <laughs> you know, that's, yeah. Uh, it's like let's leave it alone it's uh it, it doesn't belong in a museum or anything like that it belongs to the people who <laughs> this artifact
1: was born with yeah it's funny with indiana james day because he often says things belong in a museum, but then when you get to the end of the film, it usually turns out the conclusion, it's best left where it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. Just best left alone, really. Yeah, <laughs> so it's got a clearer message than Indiana Jones has. <laughs> so... Yeah, exactly, yeah.
0: Because <laughs> things that inevitably end up in a warehouse or yeah. something like yeah. that. You know? <laughs>
1: Those fools.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Those damn fools. Yeah. <laughs>
1: But um, mentioning the aspect ratio, they the most animated films of this time were made with a either a 166.1 or a 185 aspect ratio. And that was mm-hmm. predominantly because of the size of the paper that they used. Yes. And 2D animation is a physical medium. Everything was built around that aspect ratio. I think the last film that they did in widescreen was The Black Cauldron. It would have been seen as a risk, but I think it was something that they felt was appropriate for the style of film that they wanted to make. But it actually ended up being, they were able to sell it by saying, we can use everything the same, but we actually just crop the top and the bottom off, rather than deal with bigger paper, bigger backgrounds, things like that, which which would add expense. Though I think the things that would have added expense at this point is there, this is where they really started using CG a lot more in their films. Yes, yeah, it is. But I would say this was a very positive example of them integrating the two, much like Treasure Planet in a way. I feel this does it in maybe a slightly different way. With Treasure Planet, that extends into its characters a lot more, whereas... It does, Atlantis mainly uses it for the special effects, the vehicles, and a few of the background characters.
0: Well, it means as well, like, there's a clear difference between organic and an organic material because they kind of use the CGI specifically for vehicles and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. The biggest use of it is within that Nautilus-type uh, machine battle while the um, the submarine is at war with... Is it the Leviathan Leviathan, beast? yeah. But it kind of works... Better here because I like the leg that Blackbeard has in Treasure Planet and the fact that it's a part of him. But also, there's a clear oh, sorry, silver. Oh yeah, it's not Blackbeard, is it? Yeah, (laughs) Um, but yeah, there's a clear dividing line there between the two animation styles, and it's always there, always reminding you of the kind of the difference. Mm. Whereas this feels more organic because, as I say, it's primarily the difference is CGI for inorganic things such as vehicles and traditional style for all of your character work and that kind of thing kind of merges better yeah because they brought
1: in a lot of these cg artists from outside so they had to develop a way of making these 3d objects appear more 2d and drawn by flattening everything out and giving things Mm. lines and uh, i think it's relatively successful i'd say it's a very good merging of the two styles yeah yeah And they're also building on previous innovations like Deep Canvas, which was a way of them creating a 3D environment to move around in. It's something they developed for Tarzan. 3D environment, but one that was painted by hand. So it was like a usable 3D background that wouldn't look like a computer-generated background. So they used that quite liberally in this film. Yeah, they originally developed it for when Tarzan's you know, surfing through the trees. Yes, Yeah, I can and things see, like yeah. Things like that. But yeah, they use it on a much grander scale in this film. So in a way, I kind of feel like this film is... Transitional. It's a transitional film, but also it represents the zenith of all the technologies that they'd been developing
0: yeah, over the yeah.
1: Renaissance. The animation style is much more refined if you compare it to Beauty and the Beast. The actual animation style and everything is much more refined in the later films mm-hmm. than it is in the earlier films. They are still a little bit rough around the edges. From Hunchback onwards, they get incredibly refined. But yeah, it's it, it's definitely a technical high point of the genre.
0: Yeah, didn't say genre. I meant medium. <laughs> medium. Yes, <laughs> that was a
1: that was a Freudian slip.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the only thing I will say, like, I think that probably Hunchback has over this is just that in what I have seen of it, it has um, the world feels far more populated. Yes. When you see crowds of people, there are crowds of people. That's something as well. I just wanted to mention, as uh, I mentioned it earlier, that the background characters—it's like the same ten background characters every time in Atlantis. <laughs> yeah, it's not necessarily the case, but you have that feeling like it's a very limited number of people that live there. But at the end of it, you see this like huge swell of people and vehicles moving about the uh, the island of Atlantis. And I guess that's where I want to see more people more exploration of how these people live what their culture is the food that they eat all that kind of stuff i want to see like a more of a um, learning of the culture than is explored because it's more about the immediate adventure and i get as well like i can understand why because the films that it's inspired by and the stories that it's inspired by don't usually dwell on those aspects as well like journey to the center of yeah. the earth doesn't dwell in a particular place for a particularly long period of time. You know, twenty thousand leagues under the sea, also the same. It's about moving on from one adventure and one problem to the next one on a on a journey towards a a specific goal. It's more like, in a way, like road trip kind of yeah. scenario. Yeah, given the length of time that they had and the amount
1: of characters they have in the actual team, yes, yeah. restricted them on how many Atlantean characters they can actually portray, because really there's only two. You've got the king and his daughter, and everyone else is just background. The other film structurally I can compare this to that was released around the same time was The Road to El Dorado. Yes, I was thinking of that earlier. It's very similar in its construction, but the big difference is, obviously that's much more comedic a film, but because they spend less time getting to the place that they're in, it's kind of flipped the other way where the outsiders is is boiled down to two main characters plus a couple of exterior villains. And then the rest of the cast is filled out with the people that live in the place that they're journeying to. Yeah. Whereas this is flipped the other way. Whereas yeah, it's more emphasis on the team. So when they do get to the place that they're getting to, even though they've truncated that journey, the time that you spent in the place feels much smaller than it should be because you're only mm-hmm. really dealing with two characters, one of which is very stationary. Yeah, yeah. So I'd say the film slightly falls apart when you actually get to Atlantis itself because of that, because it does feel yes, yeah. once you get to Atlantis, there should be more going on. There should be maybe another subplot or something like that that's happening.
0: Yeah, there is the beginning of a conflict there. I mean, the two characters that we do have are in conflict with each other in terms of ideals, but it would be better if we had a set of people to represent those conflicts as well. Obviously, there are ways to explore this, but what does it mean on a political level? What does this mean to the way of life? How are the people that live here struggling at the fact that they're living in an isolated area underground or that type of thing? feels like, there are elements of this that are brushed over but are not explored. There are a couple of inconsistencies in
1: that world as well. I mean, because there's talk about them losing their way of life and scavenging for food, whereas a couple of scenes later, they seem to be fishing okay. Yeah, yeah. And living quite well. It really should be that they're living well, but they're losing all their culture. Yeah. They could have lost the line. Of them scavenging for food, that, you know, kind of made it more complicated and 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 slightly more confused.
0: Yeah, and also there are people that have been granted eternal life by their power source. Yeah, so
1: the film does start to slightly fall apart in that way, and also in the way that we've really grown to like and know the characters that are in the team, and then all of a sudden, for about ten minutes, they're portrayed as being double crossing villains the villains yeah it doesn't quite work i can't buy that someone like dr sweet and some of the other characters would double cross in that way
0: yeah i love dr sweet
1: yeah it doesn't (laughs) quite work for me on a character level so it's definitely the most flawed part of the film for me for sure it definitely drags it back again when you enter the climax of the film but there's probably about 20 minutes of the film where it kind of feels a bit unfocused Even though they spent so much time developing the world, and you can see that, but on a character level and where all the narrative threads match up, you can definitely feel where they've struggled a little bit.
0: Yeah. Well, it's that issue that you always come across as a writer, in terms of, like, if you're building a fantasy world, you can spend weeks, months, years building the world itself. And it could be incredibly complex, incredibly intricate. The history can be incredibly rich. But the world is only as strong as the story that's woven through it. Yeah, and where the story falters, that world will suffer with it. You know, it's just it's just one of those things. And Atlantis, I will say, is not the most extreme example of that, but it does fall into a few of those pitfalls during yeah, that, yeah. as you say, twenty-minute period. Mm. Also, in terms of the treasure hunting aspect as well, like there's a big mystery of where this power source is. That mystery kind of like solves itself. You know, it's like yeah. they kind of just, like, walk through. There's no booby traps. There's nothing preventing them from reaching this power source. It's just something that, all right, it's over there. Let's go. All right. <laughs> Maybe there should have been some Atlantean characters
1: that were starting to rebel against the king. Yes, exactly. And then yeah. they were going to show him, you know... The- And then you could have actually lost the other characters being a villain for five minutes. Mm -hmm. You could have had him and Helga going behind everyone's back, and there needed to be more made of that. I think they were just hemmed in by the running time at this point. Yeah. Because everything moves so fast, the scene in which Kida gives herself over to the power source feels quite slow in comparison. Yeah. The movie grinds to a halt for about two or three minutes. yeah. And it's not really the fault of that sequence, it's just everything else is going so fast. Yeah, it zips along. When it gets to that sequence, it really stands out
0: because it is so leisurely. I would have taken like that scene if the film had run at that scene's pace. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, I mean, we've spoken about it like on and off as well. I just want to mention Helga as well as oh, a character. Yeah. She's got like an incredible follow-on online. <laughs> I could I could see why. Yeah. Jess actually said, um, oh, she's like the Jessica Rabbit character. And I was like, yeah. Kind of, yeah. I love her introduction as well. Oh, yeah. Like, I think it's such a lovely, moody introduction as the femme fatale. Yeah, it's just
1: really well um, planned out as well. That scene, like the lighting and the design. Yeah, and, that's oh. it. And it's done in a couple of lines. Really efficient storytelling at that point as well, where he goes from the university to his flat, and then to the mansion, and then yeah. to the sub. And also, there's quite a lot of exposition at the start of the film, yeah, but it's done in a really entertaining way, like you have mm-hmm. characters that are there to just spout exposition, like the Whitmore character, but because he's so eccentric in of himself, it doesn't feel like a heavy exposition scene,
0: yeah. And because John Mahoney's clearly having a time of his life voice in the character as well.
1: Yeah, and because they add things like all the weird yoga that he's doing and all that yeah. kind of stuff.
0: That, <laughs> all the cracking of his bones. Yeah, that they really <laughs>
1: kind of get around that hurdle of trying to exposit all this information onto the
0: audience. Mm-hmm. Even though it still has like moments that... A moment that I love in the beginning of this is the little flashback to his grandfather because that's all you need in oh, terms yeah. of setting yeah. up that relationship. And I like that it's... Um, you know, it's a film about his love for his grandfather, although that is a character who we do not really see emotion apart from this tiny ten second flashback. And I love that thunking of the helmet that he tries on yeah. as a child. He tries it on and it kind of thunks down because it's way too big for him. Yeah. And then he tries it on as an adult and it does exactly the same thing. And it kind of makes you think as well, like it's a funny visual gag, but it instantly sets up the character as being someone who still looks at his grandfather with a great deal of childlike wonder he still feels like a child and in his grandfather's shadow and that kind of sets up the character as well with a with a joke that means so much more as well. Yeah, definitely. Like, he's literally someone that's, uh, he wants to fit. He's still looking for a way to fit the shoes of his grandfather, the hat of his grandfather, but he's not quite there yet. His adventure hasn't happened yet. Yeah, and like that, yeah. It's a joke, and on the face of it, it's just a very simple joke, but it also means something as well. I, so many films don't have that kind of depth anymore. No. I mean, DreamWorks kind of changed that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think also the other thing to mention
1: is this has the highest body count of any Disney animated film ever made. Oh,
0: boy, doesn't (laughs) it. (laughs) Yeah. I even wrote as well, like in my notes, I said that this had a better final death for its lead villain than Kingdom of the Crystal Skulls does. It's a character-appropriate death as well. For sure, yeah. Because he wants the
1: power source, and it's the power source that kills him. And he gets what he wants. <laughs> it's like what we talked about in Logan, where the lead mm. villain of that film should have really been killed by his robot hand because that defined him as a character. Exactly. Whereas this, they got it. They um, got it big time as well because it's it's quite a gruy death for a Disney film as well, considering... Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's got layers to it as well. Yeah. It's... Um, given that there's that 20 minute period where it really kind of goes off the rails a little bit they really claw it back in the last in you know in the last 15 minutes yeah that set piece is wonderful yeah and it's just a great use of all the mediums as well yeah it just worked. Yeah.
0: gangbusters great music as well by james newton howard yeah. who is uh i mean he seemed to go through a few disney films at this period of time it's it's a shame that they are kind of like the overlooked at disney films yeah, yeah but um i mean even like treasure planet his score is fantastic yeah, for that film yeah. Um, even where that film particularly falters, his score is still very, very strong. I love James Newton Howard. Yeah. This particular period of his music is fantastic as well.
1: Yeah, it's kind of like a for me a, a a slightly flawed gem. Yeah. You can really see why it's become a cult film. I mean, it's probably not as yeah. big of a cult film as it should be, but it's definitely over mm-hmm. the last twenty years had a massive reappraisal in a way. I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, And this is coming from someone who liked the film initially anyway and was kind of slightly puzzled as to why no one was talking about the film. Because I remember I'd been to Disneyland that summer in 2001 and they did heavily tie in the parks at least a lot of the marketing into this film mm-hmm. like i remember there being um window shop displays in main street in disneyland i remember that uh, vividly yeah. there is a um, there was a, a model like a moving model a window shop display of the climax of the film where rourke is turned into that horrible power mm-hmm. source creature
0: just scarring
1: all of the children that are walking by yeah but um <laughs> over next door in california adventure which had just opened there's an animation tour in that one and they had a huge 360 cinema screen thing and they had atlantis everything around that at the time so i was very much aware of this film but i don't know whether outside of that there was much fanfare regarding the film i yeah. feel like at this time disney got muzzled as to how to market these films they lost their mojo baby they really did I think they lost their confidence. Yeah. And I think that really started from Pocahontas onwards because they they thought Pocahontas was going to be just as big as The Lion King and it got to the point where, you know, many of the the top tier artists had worked on Pocahontas instead of The Lion King because it was generally thought that that was going to be the big film and when it didn't yeah. hit if you compare it to The Lion King it's it's kind of a flop yeah. both critically and commercially and I feel from that point onwards they were second guessing all the way through to the end of that period of time. And um, this just got caught up in that. Yeah. You can tell that there's great confidence within the filmmakers themselves in what they're doing. But I think anything outside of that, um, and I've got a quote from, you know, I'm just looking at
0: the Disney War book. I was going to mention that before. It's, it's a, we've mentioned it before on yeah. here, but Disney War is a must read for anybody yeah. that, you know, it's not just about the history of Disney, it's about, what goes on behind the scenes at the studios, it's well worth reading. Nothing has the kind of insight that that book has.
1: I mean, there's not loads on Atlantis in this book having looked through it now, but the key thing for me is that we were mentioning Peter Schneider before, who was the head of the studio. He disliked this film throughout its entire production, did not like the idea of the film at all. And if you've not got someone like that behind you, then when it comes to actually releasing the film you've kind of got no hope because no. if they're not behind the film then they're just going to throw it away exactly yeah and i just don't remember there being much in the way of marketing outside of the parks no i don't no i just can't
0: remember anything and it got it got worse as time went on as well i, I do have a question for you on the yeah on the topic of atlantis because and we did mention this in our previous disney episode and it is a film that does come up in the conversation of whether or not a live-action version of this should be made, but do you think a live-action version of Atlantis, The Lost Empire, should be made by Disney? Um, one, I don't think they would, unless they were really desperate. <laughs> um <laughs> Do you reckon they'll get round to Songs of the South before they do uh, oh, Atlantis, The Lost Empire? With any of these films, I think you could, but I think
1: a lot of what made it special would be Lost because, like we were saying before, yeah. the thing that really makes this film stand out is that Mike Mignola-style yeah. production design. And it's the same thing with Hercules, with the Gerald Scarf thing. When you take that away, all you have is a generic action-adventure film. like you know, It would be like Indiana Jones Light, or, you know, yeah. you'd just lose so much because it's so much rooted into that design and, and it being like a moving comic book that it would just lose any uniqueness. And again, it's one of those stories where it just feels like the medium was probably better suited
0: for it than a live-action. That's the thing at the end of the day with this, is I, I feel like this style is such a prominent part of its character that Mike Mignola-inspired character design the expansive world design and it draws from a lot of different kind of animation styles as well and merges them together into this cohesive whole you would certainly lose that by making a live-action adaption of it which very many films have shown that they do lose the style i mean the most recent one even something like pinocchio which keeps <laughs> to the uh keeps the look of the character but my god what an awful 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 turgid film
1: yeah I feel like we've really hit rock bottom as
0: regards yes, to those sure. live action remakes. It was so bad, it's made me start to question whether or not Robert Zemeckis was ever any good, or whether or not he was just surrounded by the right people at a certain point in his career. Yeah, that's put me in, in a very weird place with Robert Zemeckis as a uh, director. Yeah, because he, he's got a weird career where it's like a fall and rise and fall. Yeah. He
1: kind of failed upwards for a while. Before hitting with Romancing the Stone. But prior Mm -hmm. to that, he really did fail upwards. And it was just because he had some good friends in the industry that he managed to hold on. And then from
0: Forrest Gump onwards, it's kind of been a rocky road. It's been a very rocky road. Yeah. But yeah, the only, like, kind of, if you did make it into a live action, it would have to be a very, like, visually stunning director, someone like, and this is an obvious point but someone like Guillermo del Toro Mm -hmm. who would make it into kind of like his style where it's not a straight adapt You actually made a good Pinocchio film this year (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) (laughs) I genuinely can't wait for that Um, yeah but yeah I could see his style working within that but it would obviously have to be his style but yeah I think what makes this film work makes it work as an animated film by these particular people I genuinely don't think live action is the way to go for any of these types of things. But it's one of those questions that always comes up. And this seems to be the top of a few people's list in terms of what should be made into the next Disney film. They should just be making new things. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I mean, in an ideal world, that's what would be happening. And I think they're going to regret
1: a lot of what they're doing right now. Maybe not. Yeah. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow, but soon. <laughs> because when all these things start becoming seen as being tired, which they are already, where do you go from there? What what's the next thing yeah. to buy? Cause we've done it all like three times over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We've got to make something new. <laughs> you yeah. gotta. Otherwise you're gonna be hitting the end of the line rather quickly.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, we've seen it with Star Wars now as well. We've seen it with Marvel, now we've seen it with Star Wars, but the whole idea as well that by constantly just hitting an audience with a stream, a conveyor belt of, and I use this word to describe it because that's what it is, content. Yeah. It diminishes what these franchises, what these names mean. And I mean that in terms of like even going back to the artistry of like the Renaissance period, Disney kind of does a real disservice to those people that made those films, what they were in the artistry, the blood, sweat and tears that went into it. Yeah. By turning them into cynical cash grabs, it will diminish the idea of what that particular name means in an audience's mind. Yeah, because who'd have ever thought that making a Star Wars movie, a theatrical Star Wars movie, would be seen as a risk?
1: Yeah. That boggles my mind as to
0: you know where we are now. We've just had another Star Wars project fall through. One of the many... Many different projects that they had. J.D. Dillard, I think it was, um, his particular Star Wars film, is now no longer going forward. But I think that's like probably the eight (laughs) changing of director or a a writer on a Star Wars project so far. Yeah. Uh, But anyway, that's where we are with that. So moving on to the stats and facts for Atlantis The Lost Empire, I will start with the critical reception of the film. So it has a 49% tomato reading on Rotten Tomatoes. uh, That is with a 5.5 out of 10 average rating. That's very low. (laughs) Yeah, it is incredibly low for this film. Um, I remember at the time, though, it was a very kind of like middling received film. But even if you compare it to
1: some of the films made either side, it's very, very low. I think the only film that's comparable is Brother Bear. And that is a film that deserves its rating. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes, I mean
0: that is truly like bottom bottom of the barrel. Yeah. The critical consensus for Atlantis is that Atlantis provides a fast paced spectacle, but stints on such things as character development and a coherent plot. What? Um, <laughs> I think the character development is certainly certainly all there, really. Yeah. <laughs> um I think it just but, falters in its plot at certain points. Yeah. I will say, though, it did have a particularly strong fan in. I'm going to let you guess who gave this an incredibly favorable review.
1: Our good old friend Roger Ebert.
0: <laughs> yep. So, I don't, <laughs> I don't know, know why he was have- like Southern. I don't yeah. know. <laughs> yeah. It's very, very much so- Chicago. <laughs> And yeah, what Roger Ebert said about the film, he said the story of Atlantis is rousing in an old pulp science fiction sort of way, but the climatic scene transcends the rest and stands by itself as one of the great animated action sequences. Will the movie signal a new direction from Disney Animation? I doubt it. The synergy of animated musical comedies is far too attractive, not only for entertainment value, but also for the way they spin off hit songs and stage mm. shows. What Atlantis does show is a willingness to experiment with anime tradition, maybe to appeal to a teenage action fan who might otherwise avoid an animated film. It's like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea set free by animation to look the way it dreamed of looking. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and he gave that 3.5 out of 4. Yeah, yeah. I think that really hits the nail on the head as to
1: why these kind of films are doomed to fail under Disney as well because they yeah. not they greenlit them and then they kind of go oh well, I, you know, yeah can't market this we can't have a musical show in the theme park yeah we can't have a sing along songs <laughs> 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 do you remember those sing along songs videos
0: <laughs> sing along song videos oh yes. my god yeah, <laughs> you, yeah you can't have buy one for them, this
1: because <laughs> <laughs> I know there was a planned. TV series following this, which yes. did end up being, they only made three episodes and they just smashed them together and made like a shitty director video Direct sequel. Director DVD called, sequel, um, yeah. Atlantis Milo's Return or something like that, which I've never seen because it looks awful. It's supposed to be very bad. Yeah. And um, there was talk at the time of them reviving the submarine voyage in Disneyland with an Atlantis redress. Yeah. And that didn't come to pass because of the uh, relative reception of this film. And it wasn't until a few years later when Finding Nemo came out that they had a a better received property, yeah. which to redress that submarine voyage. Ah, right. That's literally all they had. They couldn't do anything else with it. So I imagine that's why they kind of didn't throw much in the way of marketing because I think they were probably a little bit like nonplussed as to what yeah, to do. Yeah,
0: kind of like, if it does well, we'll do something later. If not... It kind of like we'll just brush it under the carpet.
1: Yeah, and also we're talking a time as well when they're doing an action-adventure film of this nature when only two years later they were making something like Pirates of the Caribbean and still having major doubts about its commercial potential. So, this is a strange time when people just were not invested in making films like this.
0: Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah. Pirates of the Caribbean is one where, like, very few people believed that that film was going to be a success. Yeah. It was going yeah. to be another cutthroat island. Mm. And yeah, just to give the audience scores as well, um, on Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 54%, which I think is quite low. And that's a 3.5 out of 5 rating, though, which. Is much higher. Mm -hmm. That's an average rating for the audience score. And the IMDb score is actually quite high at 6.9 out of 10, nearly a 7 out of 10. Mm. Which, in my opinion, is where I would put this film in terms of rating. I would definitely give it a strong 7 out of 10, maybe 7.5. Yeah, yeah. And I imagine that is something that has improved over the years. But to go over to the box office now as well... We've mentioned that the budget for the film is somewhere between 90 to 120 million. We think it's more towards the 120 million mark from what's online. And the film opened, well, it opened on a limited level first, just in a few 30s, and then it opened wide to number two. It came second to Lara Croft Tomb Raider. <laughs> the irony. <are laughs> yeah, it made 20 million that weekend. And, uh, yeah, just to give you some other films that it opened up against, Lara Croft Tomb Raider was number one. Number three was Shrek in its fifth weekend. Yeah. Number four was Swordfish. Number five was Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Number six was Evolution. Number seven was The Animal. Number eight was Moulin Rouge. Number nine was What's the Worst That Could Happen? Why is that like the Dr. Pepper documentary or something? (laughs) 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 And number ten was The Mummy Returns. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I wouldn't say it's the strongest weekend, but it, in many ways it is, and in other ways it's really not. We have the big bomb that is Pearl Harbor there. We have <laughs> a Rob Schneider movie. But then we also have, like, Shrek and Moulin Rouge. Yeah. Even, like, Lara Croft Tomb Raider, which made, like, 50 million in its opening weekend. Yeah, I think that also
1: pinpoints the
0: the trouble with
1: the time it takes to make an animated film, because when they were planning this, films like... The Mummy and Lara Croft Tomb Raider wouldn't have even been in, you know, they wouldn't even yeah, have the had conversation. any conversations yet, because it takes so long to make these kind of films. I think they they said this one from start to finish took about four and a half years. Mm-hmm. So from having those initial conversations to premiere date, you've had two Mummy films come out. You know, you've had the Mummy yeah. and the Mummy Returns, which may have satisfied the appetite for that kind of film.
0: Exactly, yeah.
1: Before Atlantis actually comes out. And because it's a Disney animated film, which at this time is heavily associated with the the musical, it's an even harder sell. So it's um, I'm always left wondering why that is. Yeah. It's always something that will constantly puzzle me as to why animated films are always pigeonholed into this genre yeah. when they should just be looked at as a, a medium. Uh, I think it must be down to its historical precedent, especially when you think about when they started, they were just like afterthoughts, like little extras within your newsreel yeah. on, on a cinema screen. You think, well, oh, what would have happened if Walt had lived a bit longer? Or there'd been
0: someone similar in that regard he did always believe as well that animation could be so much more oh yeah he had this image of himself and he portrayed this image of himself but he kind of also felt like he'd also pigeonholed himself in the company in regards to what the animated films could be yeah and it's a shame that really because they can be so much more as we we keep saying it's a medium not a genre mm, yeah and um the last kind of stats from fact i have is that it was uh we mentioned it was made for 120 million and it made in all 186 million overall yeah. worldwide which again it's not quite a massive bomb but it's certainly an underperformance in terms of what disney want and what disney have spent on it yeah and it probably lost them a bit of change exactly yeah i mean i will say like i mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast this is a film that There are aspects of it. There are moving parts of this production that I absolutely adore, that I love. Overall, though, it comes together as something that I very strongly like. But the main thing is that I'm looking forward to showing my kids this film now as well. Like, this is a film that my daughter is going to love. (laughs) So, um... Maybe it'll be a film that she grows up with as well and that just cult following grows a little bit more because I think it has the potential to just continue to find its audience as the years go by. If anything, it's just a wonderfully written piece of work on a character level and these characters are designed in amazing ways and do amazing things and it's worth watching just for... For that alone, yeah. And who knows? It could grow an even bigger cult
1: following to the point where Disney makes a really, really bad live-action remake of it. So you know, there's
0: always that hope. Directed by Robert Zemeckis. <laughs> That's its ultimate fate. <laughs> <laughs> That's the end game, people. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I might bury this episode just so that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so that's all we have to say on Atlantis The Lost Empire. I think it's a film that we would also both recommend. And next week, we're refusing to come up for air as we explore a different kind of disaster with James Cameron's Titanic. But until then, I've been Gareth. And I've been, oh boy, Corporate Disney Mouse. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's too good of an impression, that. It's too good. It's it's a kind of impression that sounds like you've been practicing in front of the mirror naked. Oh boy! Oh boy! Oh oh, oh, boy! Oh oh, 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 oh boy! (laughs) You're a wrongin'. Okay, but until then, thanks for listening and uh, stay safe, everybody, (laughs) because Andy's around.